Blog Talk Radio. Good evening, everyone, and welcome to Addiction Treatments That Work. I'm your host, Kenneth Anderson. Tonight, our guest is Anne Fletcher. She is the author of the new book, Inside Rehab, and also the author of several other books, including Sober for Good. We had her on the show a while back, talked about Sober for Good, but now the new book is out, and we want to talk about that one. Before we start the show, I'm going to do a little blurb for our website and our book. Our website is hamsnetwork.org. We are a free-of-charge lay-led support group for people who want to make any positive change in their drinking habits, from safer drinking to reduced drinking to quitting altogether. Our book is called How to Change Your Drinking, A Harm Reduction Guide to Alcohol. It's available from Amazon. For more information, go to hamsnetwork.org slash book. Our guest, Anne Fletcher, is with us right now. How are you doing this evening, Anne? I'm just fine. It's good to be with you. Well, it's good to talk to you again. Uh, I think the new book is really interesting. Well, thanks. Wow. It's, I, I hope it is, too. It took a long time to write it, almost five years. You know, I've, uh, well, I'm going to start with saying uh, my personal feelings when I was reading the book. It was reminding me of uh, Upton Sinclair's The Jungle. If you, uh, you're familiar with that one? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, geez. I, I don't know if it's a compliment or is, if it's going to, well, I guess it is a compliment because that's certainly a very important book, but I don't know if it's going to scare people, make people angry. Um but uh yeah, I well, I I went inside rehab. <laughs> so I nobody else was doing it and I, you know, I mean, some academics were doing it and a lot of people don't know this, but uh, cuz I didn't say it in the book, but I said in one of my I have a blog now called Inside Rehab at Psychology Today and I say it in one of my blogs, but Dr. Tom McClellan had been doing something like this. He's a one of the leading experts who has systematically studied addiction treatment. Have you had him on your show? Not yet. Um, okay. I, I'm planning to contact him about it soon. So. He would be a, a great interview. But anyway, he got me interested in the topic of studying addiction treatment after I wrote Sober for Good because he he helped me with the short section on addiction treatment in Sober for Good, which came out in 2001, that book is really about long-term sobriety, what people who had five years of sobriety or more did to overcome drinking problems. And there's a short section on uh, formal addiction treatment where people go away to rehab or go to an outpatient program in that book, which is the new book really focuses on that. And we'll we'll talk more about that because that's what this interview is about. But toward the end of um, that book is this short section, and Dr. McClellan helped me with that, and he and I became friendly after that, and he kept telling me basically about how deplorable the state of addiction treatment was in this country. And we became friendly, and over the years I stayed in touch with him. And um, he would was telling me about a pilot study he was doing where he was studying addiction treatment programs across the country, and he would say things like the turnover of addiction treatment professionals working in these programs is as high as that in fast food restaurants. Well, that's pretty disturbing because when people are changing jobs a lot, it often means they're not happy, they're not well paid, and that translates into poor patient care. Um, it uh, so that you know that was one thing he would say that there aren't mental health professionals on site, there aren't medical professionals on site, so that was very upsetting too. And um, so I, you know, I would say to him, Tom, you need to write a book about this. 
And uh, he, I actually enlisted him to write this book with me, and he was just too busy to do it. He said, I'll help you with it, you know, unofficially. So I decided to go inside myself about five years ago, and I traveled around the country and visited about 15 very different kinds of programs, um, everything from celebrity rehabs to outpatient programs to high-end 12-step programs and some non-traditional, more cognitive behavioral evidence-based programs, and even programs that treat indigent people. And uh, so that's where it all began. Well, you know, I kind of knew about this. I went through treatment uh, two times, once about 15 years ago and once about 10 years ago. And I saw this stuff firsthand. But, you know, if you come out of treatment and you talk about this, it's like, well, that person's just a drunk or an addict. You can't believe anything they say. Yes. So, well, it's the blame the patient. You know, it's it's not that treatment failed you. It's that you failed treatment. And there certainly are times when people are not ready um, and, you know, that their treatment doesn't take. You know, that it's it often does take multiple times to go through treatment. But what I found more often than not is that um, that the treatment, excuse me, in this country is really one-size-fits-all treatment. And we can talk about different aspects of that shortly. But basically, people, I talked to so many people, very sad stories, who went to treatment over and over and over again. And they spent literally, some of them, hundreds of thousands of dollars. I interviewed more, not only did I go to these 15 programs, but I interviewed more than 100 people who had recent contact had, with, with some form of rehab or their family members. And some of them had spent hundreds of thousands of dollars. There was one guy um, who spent close to a million dollars, his family, on addiction rehab. Sadly, he died toward the end of my writing the book. Um, And I stayed in touch with his mother. Um, And we've, you know, been trying to figure out, you know, how to to change the addiction treatment system. And And I do offer, try to offer lots of solutions and ways to try to get quality treatment throughout the book. But anyway... He was one of these people who kept going back to rehab, and lots of aspects of treatment, particularly the 12 steps, were not working for him, and he was always blamed for not getting it, and um, he never knew that there weren't other options, Um, and I actually finally met him. uh, I didn't finally meet him. I met him at a program that finally offered him a non-12-step option, but a lot of damage had been done because he, he basically was blamed for failing treatment many, many times. Um, and again, you know, close to a million dollars were spent. He had been to more than twelve, yeah, more than a dozen inpatient treatment programs, um, and was having really a terrible time of it. Well, the public has certain beliefs that they've been sold on, and I'm going to bring up the example of Charlie Sheen not so long ago, and Dr. Drew was, uh, you know, long distance diagnosing, which first of all you shouldn't be doing anyway. But he was long-distance diagnosing and saying, uh, well, Charlie Sheen can't uh, do anything on his own. Addiction has to be treated inpatient. It has to be residential. It has to be in groups. And what is the reality of this? Yeah, the book addresses lots of those myths about addiction treatment, um, that all treatment should be done in groups, and that's one of the one-size-fits-all things that goes on. I met a lot of people, and in fact, most treatment does go on in groups. Um, and there's no evidence that group treatment is the most effective way to treat addiction. 
many people, um, one of Dr. McClellan's um, famous quotes is, if you go to just about any rehab in the country, the major group treatment activity is group. If that doesn't work, then they'll try group. And if all else fails, they'll suggest group. Um, at This bowled me over. At some high-end rehabs, um, well, I would say it's a typical high-end rehab because I visited some of the most famous ones in the country and also went online and looked at typical programs. And these are places that are charging like 30000 for a month of rehab. And I found that it's typical that there's some type of group counseling, education, lecture, or other group activity about eight hours a day, not including meals. Not only did I say to myself, who thinks that a recovering person with addiction should be sitting in, you know, it's it's a lot of seat time for somebody, anybody. I mean, I, when I was in grad school getting my master's, a three-hour class, you know, I'd be in a job by day and a three-hour class at night. It was just hard to sit for three hours of anything. But this is somebody who's in recovery, you know, recovering from mm-hmm. the effects of drugs on the brain. To have them in all that seat time but also the lack of individualized treatment, I felt was really unconscionable. I thought if I sent my, I have three young adult kids, if I sent one of them to a rehab and they were getting so little individual treatment at a high-end traditional residential rehab, so I'm talking like a traditional 12-step based rehab, typically a person would get maybe three to five hours of individual counseling a week most of that is with a drug and alcohol counselor, and we can talk about what their what their credentials are, what their background is. You would get, after your initial assessment, once a week, if you had a co-occurring psychological problem, you'd get an hour a week with a psychologist, and that was it. Otherwise, you'd just be seeing an addiction counselor who maybe would have a bachelor's degree. If you were lucky, they'd have a master's degree. So only three to five hours a week of individual counseling, eight hours a day of group counseling, um, a lot of which has been shown to be ineffectual. Many people said to me, I went to many rehabs and I wasn't able to overcome my addiction until I went to a place that had more one-on-one treatment. I just couldn't share in all those groups. They just didn't work for me. But the shame thing about you can't, Mm -hmm. you know, he was criticized for crafting his own treatment in-home rehab, and we know that you know one, most people actually recover from serious substance use disorders either on their own by going to a self-help group or by seeing an individual therapist. We don't know how many of those people there are out there, but that is a much underrated route to recovery. Anyway, oh, go yeah, ahead. We, what were you going to say? Oh, well, you just brought up another one, so I'm going to go to this one. Um, <laughs> okay. Since you brought up a really important point, um, because there are several studies, like a huge study called NISARC National Epidemiological Survey of Alcohol-Related Conditions, that did this long-term follow-up, and they found the normal outcome of addiction to alcohol is people overcome it on their own without treatment, without even a support group, the majority uh, overcame it on their own eventually. I mean, it takes a long time. But yep. it's not what we're told uh, in yep. the media that if you're addicted, you'll die unless you get treated. No, if you're addicted, yeah. you'll probably get better. It takes a long time, so it's not necessarily the ideal way to go. Yep. But yep. that's what happens. People get better on their own, and this is completely – it's never mentioned. Go to any treatment center's website and try to see anything about 
maturing out, spontaneous recovery. Right, right. And it happens to many young people. And I have a whole chapter on treatment of adolescents. And I know that you've had um, uh, experts who represent many of the evidence-based treatment approaches for adolescents, uh, none of which were used at any of the adolescent programs I went to. And that's of great concern to me. Typically, the approaches that are used at places that treat teens are just adult approaches that have been modified somewhat for teens, and there's no evidence that that's an effective way to treat adolescents. And here we have the approaches um, that, name them for me. Um, I, I told you I, I, I had a long day. Um, help me out. You've had I all can, three uh, of them. ACRA. Therapy? Yeah. Yep. And what's the A- third one? Okay. A multidimensional is... families therapy, ACRA. AC, well, they prefer that it be called ACRA. Yes, and which is there's a third will, one. I, yeah, the third <laughs> one is the seven challenges. Yes, the seven challenges, and, and those extra, programs. Extra. I mean, there's hundreds of seven and the challenges programs around the country. Oh yeah, and people aren't told about these places, but my book tells you how to find them. Um, and these places, these programs do not tell kids they have a disease that they're going to have for the rest of their lives. Some of them will introduce them if the kid wants to go to a 12-step support group. Um, that, but they don't make them go. They um, Well, I can't say that any of the places I went to made kids go, but it really was the only support group that was offered to them. Um, they were pretty much schooled in the disease model, which some experts I talked to said really the approach was harmful. I ta- interviewed parents. One mother that I, whose story I profiled was devastated when she was told that her son had this disease that was going to affect his brain for the rest of his life. And that's a pretty disturbing message for a parent to be told when, in fact, as you said, so many adolescents do, adolescents in particular, mature out of the problem. Um, And even if they do, do not, there's no evidence that they have to go to meetings for the rest of their life. And as we both know, there's many other ways to do it than um, than the 12 steps. They're great when they work, but they don't work for everybody. And seven to eight out of ten programs nationwide will involve the 12-step approach in some way, But um, and those figures are not really available anywhere. I worked very hard to get new and updated figures. Usually people say nine out of ten programs, and actually the number has dropped. That was the number I used in Sober for Good. It's now seven to eight out of ten programs mm-hmm. involved them, and I have more detailed stats in the book. Um, but it's estimated that about six to eight out of ten people um, with serious drinking problems encouraged to attend AA while in treatment stop attending in less than a year. So that's up to eight out of ten people who drop out in less than a year, but they're almost never told about alternatives. And I asked that of the people I interviewed who had been to treatment. I asked it of the 12-step places I visited. Do you tell people about alternatives? And it's very rare. Um, And that's very sad. When you know that people drop out, you know that it's not effective, they're not told, here are the alternatives if this doesn't work for you. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, There's a couple things that you bring into mind to me that I want to mention. one is, you know, AA is the only one that really expects everyone to attend for the rest of their life. Um, smart figures, uh, most people graduate from smart after like a year. Some people do choose 
to stick around for a long time, and that's perfectly fine. But it's much more common because, you know, Smart says you don't have a disease. It's not a lifelong disease. Uh, you're getting better, and pretty soon you're going to be well. And when you're over your addiction, you're not going to be thinking you're probably not going to be thinking about, you know, boozing or drugging anymore because, you know, you forget about they that. when want you, you to move on. on it. Right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, I will you, let – go ahead. Of course, there's no pressure ask? to move on. No pressure yeah. to move on. You can stay as long as you like, as long as you feel the need to stay, but it's not expected that you will feel the need to stay forever for most people. Well, let, let me just correct one thing. It isn't AA who says you have to go to meetings for the rest of your life. In fact, one of my favorite publications of AA headquarters is a little book called Living Sober. And it's kind of the basics. Like here, It's like Q&As about AA. And one of the questions, I, I don't have this in the, the current book, Inside Rehab, but I address it in, um, in uh, Sober for Good, is do we have to keep meetings? They ask the question in in the book Living Sober, do we have to keep meetings for the rest of our lives? And I don't think it says that anywhere in the big book. In Living Sober, an AA publication, it says, no, we only go to meetings as long as we find them helpful. Um, So one of the things that I learned um, in writing Inside Rehab and one of the things that the people I interviewed really expressed is that a lot of the dogmatism that goes on um, or that is expressed concerning AA really is not in the original teachings of AA. It wasn't even stuff that was promulgated by Bill W. He he was not that dogmatic. He did not say this is the only way. A lot of that has been promulgated by the treatment industry, the addiction treatment industry. One woman said to me, who had been to multiple rehabs, and I met her at a non-12-step program, she said, AA is a beautiful thing. I'm angry about what treatment has done to it. So a lot of the the the... The, again, the best word to use is dogmatism, is, is stuff that's not, and somebody who has captured a lot of this and examined it very brilliantly is William H. White. Um, you know, he's, he's done papers on, like, the disease model of addiction, and a lot of those concepts are not in the original teachings of AA. A lot of that has been promulgated by the addiction treatment industry. Um, you know, the... Um, you were talking about NISARC, that big study, and I cite a number of those studies in, in the Inside Rehab, is, um, you know, this whole notion that kind of everybody with addiction is the same. Um, and, you know, one of the things that's really missing in all of this focus on treatment and rehab, and I'll come back to, to NISARC because this partly comes from NISARC findings, is that really treatment programs, and AA, were are designed for people with the most serious substance use disorders. And in fact, I know you know this, but it's important for people to understand that substance use disorders, you know, drug and alcohol problems fall on a huge continuum. And I kind of like the new DSM, which will now capture them as mild, moderate, and severe. Um, and really, it's the severe category, the stereotypical addict that we think of, or the stereotypical alcoholic, that treatment programs and AA were designed for. And I quote Dr. Mark Willenbring, um, former treatment division director of NIAAA, um, who helped me a lot with the book, as saying, really, most people with 
alcohol dependent, alcohol, serious alcohol problems, um, less so with, with drug addictions, um, dr- drug problems, but it's more, this is what I'm about to say is more common with alcohol use disorders, are in the mild to moderate category. They are the people who are functioning, albeit not optimally, but they're sitting next to you in church. They're sitting next to you in the cubicle, next to you at work. They're not happy and they're impaired, but they're functioning in their lives. We don't have places for them to get help. Yes, there's brief intervention, but most people aren't trained to do that. That's a different kind of very less intense approach that's been shown to be effective. But we don't have places where people go for brief intervention. I'm a person who was in the mild to moderate category of an alcohol use disorder. There wasn't any place. Well, the place where a lot of those people get help is by working with an individual counselor who has expertise in that area. And I do have a section in the book where I talk about how you find um, physicians, psychiatrists, psychologists, social workers who have special training in that area. You can't assume that people in those categories have expertise in that area because most of them don't. But I talk about how you can find people with that credentialing. Um, And um, with NISARC showed that even people who met criteria for alcohol dependence, which is the most, that's that's the current terminology that's used for alcohol addiction, mm-hmm. even people in that most serious category actually were not all the same. And, you know, how they always tell people it's a progressive disease, you know, and if you stop, you're going to pick right up where you left off. Well, Dr. Mark Willenbring has been pointing out, and he has an excellent column right now on the new DSM that talks about this in detail. I'm sorry. At, yes, he has a new column at thefix.com that just came out. Do you read that, Ken, thefix.com? Oh, yeah. In fact, uh, it's a new Hamster's, magazine on the web. Yes, Hamster's Go got an article published in there uh, like a week ago for the first time. That's right. So. I saw that. I saw that. Yes, and that's wonderful. It's a great place for people to read heavy and light things. Your article's heavier, and this article I'm talking about is heavier, but they're really good places to get insight. Um, and um, I don't agree with everything that's there, but it gives a real good newsy forum. I've never seen anything like it on addiction. But anyway, the point that I was trying to make is that there are different categories of people with alcohol dependence or alcoholism, the more colloquial term, and some of them have a very severe form um, that, you know, has multiple severe episodes throughout their lives, and some of them have a type that's way less severe, and they only have one or two episodes, and then it seems to go away. I don't know if I'm capturing exactly right. I don't have it memorized. Mm-hmm. But people with addiction are not all the same, and they shouldn't be treated the same way, and it's not all progressive, and it's not all you pick up where you left off. So there's a lot of myths out there. Yeah, and there's a lot of uh, there's a lot of research that hasn't been done that uh, people make assumptions. People make assumptions that if you're in the more severe category, that you're going to benefit from rehab. But nobody's actually done an experiment on severity of you know severity of dependence compared to success at rehab. So we don't actually have evidence that that's true. Although it's largely yes, yes. by a lot of people. Yeah, and I, it was sad to me because I saw and I also heard stories because I interviewed many experts and addiction treatment professionals as well, more than 100 of them, um, who 
told me stories about people who were sent to rehab who didn't belong there because their substance use disorder was not that severe. And it was hard for them to be sent to AA. And, you know, and sometimes it can do more, more harm than good, particularly for adolescents. But I had adults talk about how they learned to use harder drugs when they were in with harder addicts. Um, um, they felt like they were failures because they were not connecting with the AA philosophy, so they felt like something was wrong with them, or they were just not getting good treatment that was appropriate for them because that it wasn't the right approach for them because they didn't have the same severity of problem. Well, you know, it gets back to another problem because um, when we talk about evidence-based treatments, and I've been looking at this more and more lately, um, typically the evidence base is that treatment X is compared to treatment Y. Uh, this is what they do in addiction treatment research. And, you know, I've been talking to people and say, oh, well, where was the untreated control group? And mm -hmm. they, they said, oh, well, we didn't have one. You don't need one. Everybody That's knows that treatment's better than no treatment. Mm -hmm. And I said, uh, yeah, but what study shows that? Oh, well, there must have been studies long ago that they did that showed that because we assume that. And, you know, can you name the study? Uh, no. And there's been very, very little studies ever done with an untreated control group. Uh, the Bransma study published in 1980, that's 32 years ago, is the most recent one I've been able to track down. And they had some really bizarre results. Uh, they had, I think, four treatment conditions. One was 12-step, and then they had an untreated control group. Um, the 12-step group had uh, two-thirds of the subjects dropped out mm -hmm. and one-third dropped out of all the other conditions. So in terms of That's dropout a, rate, uh, yeah, in terms of dropout rate. That's an interesting rate, point. Now, I thought I cited one NISARC study that supported, and I, if I, I, I have the manuscript in front of me that I can search, but I can't, it's 400 pages, so I can't, um, <laughs> if I remember the researchers, well, wait, NISARC, if I might, while we're talking, if I can find it, I'll tell you, but I thought it supported, and it's only one study, but I thought it did support treatment being better than no treatment, but that's, there's not going to be a control group because it's NISARC, which is an epidemiological study. Mm -hmm. So um, let me, I'll see if I can find it. If I could remember the researcher's name, it would help. Um, but anyway, I'll, if I find it while we're talking, I will let you know. But talking about evidence-based treatment, um, there were three main findings in the book in terms of problems with the industry. When you talk about this being like, uh, what was the, the big expose book of the meat industry? Oh yeah, the the jungle. Which uh, yeah, I okay. Tell, so yes, okay. I so tell there were people very quickly. I'm going to tell people very quickly because not everybody in our audience has read the jungle. Okay, the jungle yes. was published before there was an FDA. It was published around the turn of the century, and uh, a lot of uh, canned meat products in the United States were poisonous. They were giving people food poisoning at the time, and there's a famous story. Teddy Roosevelt was reading the book at breakfast eating a sausage and said oh my god i've been poisoned and he uh immediately started the work in progress to do a fda food and drug administration to make sure that the food produced in the u.s was edible and wasn't going to kill you and that's why i hope that your book could be you know bring about the same kind of thing with the treatment industry to you know bring out some kind of regulatory agency to make sure that these treatments are actually helpful and not harmful well, yeah. <laughs> um, 
I, I, I hope that that was one of the conclusions, actually, to have more regulation you were talking about? Yes. Um, that, that that was one of the conclusions of the big Casa Columbia report that came out on the addiction treatment industry, which really corroborated everything that I found. Um, it, was, it came out just as my book was going to press, and CASA is an acronym. Um, I forget what it stands for, but um, it is, if you search Casa Columbia and addiction treatment, you'll find a 600-page report um, that really is a kind of a scathing indictment of the addiction treatment industry, and that was one of their conclusions, is that we need, that it's an unregulated industry and we need much more regulation. And so going back to their, their three main issues, there, you know, there are lots of issues that I found, but one was the one-size-fits-all treatment. Another was the gap between science and practice, which you were kind of getting to, and I'll come back to that. And then the third was the kind of the regulation issue, the things we think should protect us don't. And I'll come back to that too. But the, the science, the lack of evidence-based treatment is a, a big issue because most um, – most people who most addiction treatment programs say they're using using scientifically backed approaches, and they are to some extent, but most are used minimal, minimally, and not as they're designed to be used in research studies. And I found that in in the places I visited, and it's also been shown by experts who go in and study um, in a systematic way what goes on in these programs. Kathleen Carroll at Yale University is a person who has done this. And, you know, they go in and they tape what goes on in sessions where you would think that probably counselors are on their best behavior. And one of the conclusions of one of their studies is that a lot of what goes on is just chat, C-H-A-T. Another more recent study that's ongoing, I was told by the researcher that there's a lot of winging it and going on the computer to Google worksheets before her group. So that doesn't sound very scientific. Um, I alluded to this earlier that there's still a tremendous. Uh, there's a still. I, I witnessed this because I was allowed to follow at some places patients as they went through their treatment day to sit on in on groups. Um, there's still a treatment mainstay as educational lectures and films. Hundreds of studies show these to be among the least effective ways to treat alcohol problems failure to use medications that we know help people, some people with addictions. Only about two out of ten programs nationwide use FDA-approved alcohol medications. Many programs still will not send patients with opioid addiction, so addiction to heroin and prescription painkillers. They'll use Suboxone to detox a patient, and Suboxone helps prevent the cravings that lead to relapse with these medications. They'll use it to make detox more comfortable, but unless patients are sent home on those medications and kept on them for a long period of time, they're much more likely to relapse and die. Um, the research shows this. Many research studies show this, and many patients simply refuse to use these medications. I think it's partly out of old-fashioned thinking. You don't use drugs to treat a drug addict. Um, there's you know, worry about abuse of these medications, um, but the benefits far outweigh the risks. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, now that reminds me of something else that's in your book, and you discussed some of the programs that address uh, the indigent, the poor, uh, and these are largely government-funded programs, 
and they're pretty cheap, and lots of people can access these for free. And how did they compare in evidence-based treatment using this compared to some of these high-end rehabs? Well, one of the things I learned that was a surprise to me is that there's not nece- there's not a correlation between what you pay and the quality of treatment. Now, certainly there are, and I visited some of them, some terrific programs that cost a lot of money. And, you know, the, I mean, if you want to work with a doctoral level psychologist who where you're getting, you know, uh, an individual treatment session every day, you're probably going to pay for that. And um, I think we do need to find a way to make that kind of treatment because it is probably more effective. We don't have good outcome studies on any of this. We need to find a, a good way to make that more financially viable and to get insurance companies to pay for it. And there are um, some low-income programs that are just terrible. But in general, there is not a correlation between the 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 quality of treatment and what you pay for it. I was told this by people who study this aspect of treatment. And I found a number of low-income programs, publicly funded programs, that actually had better treatment than some of the high-end places that are across the country. And I was told that one of the reasons for this is that publicly funded programs relying on government grants are required to provide evidence-based treatment and provide documentation of that. Um, They are required to have master's degree level counselors. Um, In many states, and this is where we get back to my third finding, is that the things we think should protect us don't. Um, Credentialing and licensing in the field don't mean a heck of a lot. In more than half of our states, it's not required to become an addiction counselor they don't require a minimum of a bachelor's degree. So you have people providing most of the care for treatment, addiction counselors, who don't who have a bachelor's degree or less, that in most cases. But you go to some of these government funded programs or publicly funded programs and they're required to have a master's degree. Um so they have, you know, much more intense training. I profiled, and one of the things I do is I don't just talk about how terrible and bad rehab is. I profile some of the, um, I spotlight certain programs that are providing quality treatment, evidence-based treatment, and I profile some of these. Um, I can think of one program called the ARC program. I believe it was in Wisconsin, and it was a program for low-income women and it was really a holistic approach, and I'm not talking about, you know, Reiki and massage therapy. I'm talking about holistic, helping people really really rehabilitate their whole lives, not just dealing with the addiction, co-occurring psych problems, getting people back to work, education, parenting skills, new, helping them with nutrition, you know, the whole, the whole ball of wax and helping them become re- rehabilitated as a total person. Okay, I'm going to mention also um, my current day job. I'm not sweeping a church anymore. I'm working for the Lower East Side Harm Reduction Center, which is, uh, well, it was initially a, a needle exchange program, and it still is a needle exchange program. But since 1992, when it was uh, founded, it's added many other services. And so now Lower East Side Harm Reduction Center offers Evidence-based treatments, such as seeking safety, is one. It's SAMHSA evidence-based treatment. Um, and another, is that for trauma? Um, it is for trauma. Yep. And okay, I thought it was. And another is 
Street Smarts, which is aimed at uh, street-involved youth um, who may be at risk of HIV because of sexual practices or drug use. And there's several other evidence-based treatments that we offer, which are delivered by uh, licensed, master-degreed social workers. That's great. Where is that, Ken? It's on the Lower East Side of Manhattan. Okay. So it's the Lower East Side Harm Reduction Center. That's awesome. And uh, in addition to that, uh, we do buprenorphine. It's not a detox. We do buprenorphine maintenance for the people who wish to have it. Which and is the same, course, Suboxone, which I mentioned earlier, just suboxone. in case people mm-hmm. don't know what that is. Yep, different yeah, names for the same thing. Yeah, it's a brand name and a generic name for the same yep. drug. Like acetaminophen is Tylenol. It's the same yep. thing. You know? um, so we do all of this good stuff. And, you know, so you might be better off to be a homeless heroin user seeking treatment in the Lower East Side of Manhattan than paying $60,000 $60, for a month of rehab in some of these places. Well, the other thing that's very sad, I have a, a a section in the book called The Middle Class Squeeze, and some people said to me, you know, in some ways you're better off to be poor than middle class. Um, you know, the really wealthy can afford treatment, and the very poor get treatment because they're poor. And I interviewed a woman who basically feels that in many ways she lost her daughter because they, you know, they, they didn't qualify for anything because they were middle class. Um, they they were too they made too much money to to qualify for any public assistance, but they didn't they they didn't make enough money to really pay for treatment for their daughter who was a heroin addict, um, and it's a really sad story. And you know they finally got her into a program that really was, I think it was it an outpatient I can't remember the details, but um, it it was just like too little in the beginning and then it was too late for what she got and I don't know about the quality of the treatment but you know she she died of an overdose and it was a very sad sad story um so I you know it's 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 very difficult and the other thing too is that um I believe I talked about this in the book some of these programs these low income programs that are really comprehensive I don't know if you or I could go to them now. You know, I don't know if they, I guess, like if we self-paid, I I don't know if they would take us. You know, as middle-class people, I'm assuming you're a middle-class person, you know, I don't know mm-hmm. if we could go and self-pay. Um, I have some of the cost comparisons in the book, but the other thing is I'm not sure, I don't mean this to sound elitist, but if a person, a middle-class person, would feel comfortable in some of those programs because the people um, are very different, are de- dealing with very different issues. They may be uneducated, they may be homeless, and they're struggling in dealing with very different issues. So sometimes a middle-class person really just kind of can't go anywhere. Um, it's, 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 we, we just have a lot of problems in this industry. Mm-hmm. Well, one of the things that goes back to, as you said, you know, in rehab they think everything has to be group, 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 yeah. There are exceptions to this, but at uh, Lower East Side, uh, the Seeking Safety is a one-on-one session. These are these uh-huh. are all one-on-one sessions. We do have group sessions too, um, as well uh, for some of the other uh, interventions. So there are group sessions, and there are also a lot of individual sessions that are done. Um, currently, we don't do a fee for service, but uh, we're looking into that and you know making it affordable on a sliding scale uh-huh. to get some of the middle class. 
because uh-huh. it might be a good way to, for us to get some extra income. Yeah, you know, yeah. Uh, always being tied to a government contract isn't always the funnest way to go either. Right, right. <laughs> that has its own problems. But well, and then I'll I'll go back too to the option of seeing an individual therapist. Um, because when Jane Brody interviewed me for a column for the New York Times, she really was pressing me. She wanted it to be very service-oriented and practical. And she said, I want to know right now, if there was somebody in your life who needed treatment right now, what would you do? And it was one of my first interviews, and it was like, okay, she's really putting me on the spot. Right now, what would you do? And, you know, I hadn't really had that posed to me. And, you know, you you kind of have to prep when you're first being interviewed. And she interviewed me before the book even came out. So I hadn't even finished reading it. You know, people don't realize that an author has to read his or her own book. Uh, because, you know, you, when you finish a book, you ha- want to take a break from it, and then you have to go back and read the 400 pages that you write and refresh your memory. But anyway, um, so I was in the process of reading my own book, but this wasn't a question that I had really answered. Like, okay, what's the first thing that you should do? So I thought, you know, okay, if somebody came to me, and it wasn't a person like, you know, who was really very sick with addiction, because that person would probably need detox. But let's assume that it's not a person, you know, in, who's, you know, in a very severe addict who, or alcoholic who needs detox. Um, my first, I said, don't have that knee-jerk reaction that everybody has because of what the media feeds us and what addiction treatment programs feed us. You got to go to rehab. Um, first, realize that most addiction treatment is not going away to rehab. of addiction treatment in this country is outpatient treatment, but don't even assume that you need outpatient treatment. My advice when she pressed me was, I would would say my first piece of advice is to go find that individual therapist who has expertise with addictions. And again, I gave those guidelines in the book for how to find somebody. Get an individual independent assessment from that person. And I said, you know, I live in a university town. It's a small city. In technically, it's rural Minnesota. I'm about 80 miles south of Minneapolis. And, you know, most people would say, well, I, I don't know. Well, so when I first came here and I needed to see somebody, I sat down with the Yellow Pages. And I call around, and lo and behold, and I've helped other people do this too, there are several people in this town at a doctoral or master's, master's degree level with mental health credentials who also have expertise with addictions. Um, And a lot of people say they do at the master's level, so I would really press and say, what is your specific training? Um, But there are people with good training in this small town of about 50,000, 60,000 people who you can make an individual appointment with. You can go in. Most of them accept health insurance. It's harder if you're paying out of pocket, but many will work on a sliding scale. They will do an individual assessment, help you decide if you need outpatient residential treatment. Um, they don't have a vested interest in admitting you the way a rehab does. I have a whole section about how assessment works at a rehab and how you get it, how you know if you're getting a good assessment. But one of the problems is once you walk in the door at a rehab, you're usually admitted. <laughs> and it's kind of backwards. I have a whole section about how they put the cart before the horse. Um, you know, you're, if you have an assessment there, you're almost always admitted. So you go to this independent person who doesn't have a vested interest in admitting you to rehab. They have somewhat of a vested interest in seeing you as a patient, but most of them are pretty damn full already in in their practices, um, at least where where I live. But I think it's true most places. We have a shortage of mental health professionals. 
they do this independent assessment, can tell you how severe they think your problem is. And it may work for you to see that person. It may be to your benefit to see that person individually at least for a while. And you may not need to go to rehab. It would be much more cost-effective, and this person may be more effective if you have co-occurring psych problems like depression or anxiety. You're going to get better help by working with this person individually than you are by going to rehab where you're working most of the time with a person with a bachelor's degree or less. Does that make sense? That does make sense. There's one other thing I would like to add to that, which I don't know if you mentioned this in your book or not, but I think one thing that people can do a lot, and this has actually been shown to have an evidence base, it's called bibliotherapy. It's getting a self-help book and applying what's in the book and doing it on your own and a lot of people can succeed with a good self-help book. One that I like to recommend for people who want to quit, it's called Alcohol, How to Give It Up and Be Glad You Did by uh, Philip Tate. Um, I, I have that book, and I, I talk about this more in Sober for Good. But, yes, I have that. And another good book is Sex, Drugs, Gambling, and Chocolate by Tom Horvath. Mm-hmm. I have it sitting on my desk. Um, so, yes, and I think there is evidence supporting the use of these books. You have to be pretty motivated to do it on your own. Um, but, yeah, there are plenty of people who do it. And it's a heck of a lot cheaper than any other method you can do. If you spend 10 bucks for this book on Amazon, give it a try. If it doesn't work, then you can go on to the next step. We can plug our book, too, the Ham's book, How to Change Your Drinking. If you don't know that you want to quit, but you know that you say want to be safer, stop drinking and driving, stop acting like an idiot when you drink, or cut back and drink less, um, you know, we are the, the only organization that really says any positive change you want to make in your drinking habits, we will support you. And we've got a lot of stuff in our book about how to make those harm reduction type choices. And I support that approach, too. I I would fully support that. So, um, yeah, and the other thing is you could, many of these people would work with you using one of those books, too. You know, it doesn't help to hurt to have professional support while you're using one of those books. And mm-hmm. some of them might even use them in their practices. I know Dr. Horvath uses his book in his practice, but some people might use a book that you bring to them and say, I'd like to use this book. Will you help me with it? Mm-hmm. So anyway, all of that is I have a whole I have a whole um I don't know if you saw the place in my book where I talk about how um you could set up your own personalized addiction treatment program by, mm-hmm. you know, wor- working, you know, you could hire your own drug and alcohol counselor, your own psychiatrist, your own psychologist, your own exercise program, hire a massage therapist. I forget all the details. And if you did set up this whole intensive program for a month, it would still be half the price of a high-end rehab. Um, you know, basically showing how you, you could get so much support for your money um, that would be so much more individualized. Um, there's lots of other ways to spend that money. But that doesn't mean that residential rehab isn't sometimes in order and can't be effective and there aren't some very good places to find it. And, I that again, I want to go back to, you know, every chapter is organized. The book is organized around the issues a person faces as they're looking for treatment. So there's a chapter on cost. There's a chapter on co-occurring disorders. Um, there's a chapter on what happens after treatment, you know, the, the maintenance of, of the, you know, recovery. Um, and I have questions that people can ask to try to find 
you know, to try to sort through the issues as you're looking at rehabs and trying to find quality treatment regarding all of those issues so that you're not just left holding the bag and faced with all the problems of rehab so that you have some can find some solutions as well. Mm-hmm. Well, lots of people have talked about uh, medicine normally uses a tiered approach where you use the least invasive intervention first. If you stub your toe, you don't amputate the whole leg. <laughs> right, right. You put Step a approach, right. On it. You, you put a right. band-aid on it and it usually gets right. better. So, I mean, you can try a self-help book. If it doesn't work, you can go up a level, find a counselor. Or some of these uh, outpatient programs that we mentioned, like multidimensional family therapy, the the community reinforcement approach thing, and uh, seven challenges. You know, I was talking to some of these people about, can you afford to pay for these out of pocket? And, yes, I mean, compared to your luxury rehab, uh, a lot of people – will find these quite affordable, even if their insurance doesn't co- cover them. The middle class could pay for these on, on the outpatient basis. So yep, they're a lot yep. more you're talking, you're talking like less than 5000 I think, for most of the things you just mentioned, and even some of the community outpatient programs versus 15000 and up, way up for yeah. a residential program. Up to 60000 a month. I mean, I had one yeah. guy that was asking to be a guest on my show, and, you know, sent me a copy of his book. And, I, you know, I checked out his book and his program, and he says, um, well, we, we've found evidence that the longer you're in treatment, the better. Well, that's true. As yeah. He mentioned that in the book, too. So he said, uh, you should be in our program for three months at $60,000 a month. Oh, my goodness. It's like, uh, first of all, the prices you charge, you're not getting on my show, period, because you're a highway <laughs> robbery pirate. Uh, nothing you do is worth that much, not even if you give me high-class hookers every day. I don't care. <laughs> you know, it's just not worth that kind of money, um, seriously. Uh, but then, you know, in his book, he doesn't mention so many important things, like outpatient is probably as good as inpatient most of the time anyway, because yep. he doesn't want yep. – the, the book is a, is a big ad for his rehab to get people in. And, you know, I only have people that say – useful things not i don't bring people on just to sell their program or their book their book has to be good before i let them promote it on my show well you know as dr willenbring says in my book and he he is um starting a he has started um an evidence-based in in st paul minnesota an evidence-based um non-traditional approach to i don't even want to call it a program because i don't think that these places that they don't it's not a program when it's individualized for every single patient a program implies one size fits all treatment it's called altier a-l-l-t-y-r um and this is really he just was starting to talk about this when i was writing the book but basically what he says is that there's no evidence of of value of a short-term burst of treatment where you go away you're removed from reality, you have this intensive treatment, and then you go back to reality. I have, you know, I have a checklist that was uh, suggested um, by Dr. Jim McKay at the University of Pennsylvania, who's an an expert, obviously, or I wouldn't have asked him, for the small percentage of people who probably really do need residential treatment, severe co-occurring disorders, et cetera. But... um, Basically, when we talk about somebody with a severe addiction needing long-term treatment, it doesn't mean that you go away to rehab for three months, residential rehab. 
it means, you know, that kind of addiction is something that is probably going to wax and wane. And so when the addiction intensifies, when the symptoms, it's just like, you know, diabetes or, you know, some other kind of chronic disorder, when the symptoms flare up and they intensify, you need more intensive treatment. And when they lessen, then you you don't go as often. So that person might, you know, they could have a person like a Dr. Willenbring in their life who they see um, on, uh, you know, they, they, they step up the treatment when they're having more problems or they might be hospitalized for a short period of time. Um, and it could be a week. You know, it does, that doesn't necessarily have to be 30 days. And then they step down to, you know, going to an outpatient program or it doesn't have to be a program. They go to see that therapist several times a week. I was surprised recently that my insurance happens to be Blue Cross Blue Shield. And I was surprised to find out that they would pay. People don't even think to ask these questions. I always assumed that for a mental health professional, they would only pay, you know, the typical model is you see somebody once a week. And that's what they pay for. And I was curious, and I just said, well, what if somebody wanted to see somebody twice a week? I I never thought they would pay for that. And they said, well, if the provider thought that it was necessary for the patient to be seen more than once a week, yes, we would pay for that. Well, most people never would think, you know, you don't think because that's not the model. It's either you're in residential treatment for a mental health or addictive problem, or you see somebody once a week for that mental health problem. Well, of course we know that there's things in between in terms of need for support. So sometimes we just have to ask the right questions. And, of course, it depends on the policy. But anyway, that person's intensity of treatment, you know, can step up or step down throughout their lives. And the important thing is to have somebody in your life, a consistent provider, who you can go back to. I've had the same mental health provider slash addiction expert in my life for 20-some years. And if I feel that I might be in a vulnerable state, I had an empty nest not long ago where my last child went off to college. And I thought, you know, this might be just a good time to check in. You know, it's just, you know, there might be a little sadness. And, yeah, it's just a good time to touch base with that person. I hadn't seen him in years. This is why you need somebody like that in your life. If you feel vulnerable, if you feel at risk for a relapse, if you have a slip so you can go to somebody who knows you, you don't feel ashamed, this is that 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 continuing kind of care model, that recovery management model that a lot of people like William White are talking about. Anyway, and I, I talk a lot about that in that one of those later chapters in the book. Well, I wanted to bring up one other thing about the outpatient versus the inpatient, uh, since you kind of touched on it. And even if the costs, you know, were identical, um, there's something really to be said in favor of outpatient. Because there you are. You're in your environment every day. You're facing your reality and learning to deal with it as you're going through your treatment. So, you know, your temptations are in front of you. You have to deal with them. If you take the person, ship them all the way across the country, isolate them in this locked environment that they never leave, well, of course they're not going to use any drugs while they're there. Right. And then, boom, plop them right back down in the middle of the place where all their temptations are. How did they learn to deal with anything? Well, they didn't really. Right. Now, you know, that's not to say that there aren't people who don't re- who need a, a sober living environment. Um, you know, I remember sitting thinking as I was watching some of the women in um, some of the 
it, you know, residential rehabs that I visited where these women, you know, had pretty severe addictions and co-occurring psych problems. And I thought to myself, I can't imagine these people staying sober in an outpatient program. I really, really couldn't imagine it when I heard them share their stories. They let me sit in on the groups, not on the individual sessions mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. for the most part. But, And I really had really I – was, I was trying to picture it because I knew about the research saying outpatient was just as effective as residential. But what the ex, when I posed that question to some of the experts who were saying, you know, residential is – or outpatient is as good as residential, I said, you know, I just – how would these people stay sober? They just didn't seem to be able to function in the real world. What the experts said was they don't need to be in 24 hours of treatment a day or the eight hours of treatment that I was describing, eight hours of group treatment. People like that can be in a less expensive and less intense treatment model. So they go to an outpatient program, you know, X number of hours a week, and they live in a sober home. That is a much more cost-effective, sensible, real-life way of them learning to, deal, learning to deal with reality. So they're in a monitored home situation. The problem is we don't have a great sober living situ, um, system in our country. They're not well-regulated. You know, that, that's another thing that needs to be regulated. Some of them are extremely punitive. They tend to require people to go to AA. Um, there are terrific ones. I, inter- I have a story of a woman who was in a terrific situation where kids could be there with her and they had her involved, you know, all the patients had to be involved, not patients, clients had to be involved in a community, um, uh, you know, community event. So she was organizing a bake sale for um, an animal shelter. They had to exercise X number of times a week. Um, you know, it, it, an ideal one would involve clients in the organization of the facility. It wouldn't be real dictatorial. Um, it would give them a choice in the recovery meetings they attended. You know, and there are places like that. Uh, uh, they they would not kick people out who are using Suboxone. <laughs> they would not be rigid if somebody used. They would recognize that if they see this as a disease, um, which most of them do, they would recognize that part of the illness or whatever you want to call it is that they would use again. So there would be some flexibility there. Um, so, you know, we need better sober homes, but a good sober home and having somebody in outpatient treatment would be probably a better way to handle a lot of these people than sending them away for 30 or 90 days of residential rehab. Yes, and you can continue to stay in your sober home after you finish your treatment. Yes. In many yes. cases. Yeah. Yes, and then start working. And, yeah, I interviewed a woman who did that, and she had a very good experience. Yep. Now, and then my, she started my, working with a counselor individually. Mm-hmm. Now, my last question for you, I read every single page of your book before. I did oh, I give you a gold medal. Which, <laughs> I do with almost everybody. If if it's physically possible for me to read the whole book before I interview uh-huh. a person, I really work very hard to try and do that. Um, I thank you. I'm impressed. I think a lot of uh, people that interviewed you, I listened to some of them, and I don't think they read the book. Were some people surprised when you were critical of rehab on their shows? Um, well, that's interesting that you, you, you even listen to the interviews, too. Um, I think it's fairly common pe- for people not to read the book, and it is a big book, but um, but most people have said it's a good read. Um, it has a lot of stories of people. Um, were people surprised that I was critical of rehab? I don't 
I don't think so because I think that they knew that that's what the book was about. And I have, I expected there would be a lot more backlash about the book, and there has been less than I expected. And I mean, I'm really pleased to see postings at Amazon. You know, like the reviews of the book. There was one that went up the other day from an addiction counselor saying, "You should read this book. I've changed my practice because of it." I mean, they're the ones that, and and from you know, obviously the um, you know people who need help who say, "I read this book, and my kid's been to five rehabs, and boy, this one really helped me." Or, "I wish I had had it, and now it's you know really been effective for us." Um, they're the ones that mean the most. But I, you know, I mean, there might be lots of people talking about me behind my back, but for the most part, I have not heard or seen a lot of angry backlash. And even an executive at a prominent um, traditional treatment program has reached out to me to do some things with him, um, which really surprised me. And I said to him, um, have you read the book? You know, I was being funny. We're, we're friendly anyway. And I thought maybe he might be a little mad at me after he read it. And he said, no, you know what? There's enough addicts to go around for everybody. So I was pleasantly surprised. So, I, you know, I, I, I hope they're not just waiting for me to go away and people to lose interest in the book and that maybe maybe some things will really change because of it. No, I don't think that's the case at all, um, because the field has been changing, you know, uh, 15 years Slowly ago. Slowly but surely, yeah. I mean, 15 years ago, um, you said things like, well, maybe AA is not for everybody. You are wrong. AA is for everyone. And, and you know, there is absolute dogmatism everywhere you look. And now, you know, I talk to all kinds of professionals online, on LinkedIn and things like that. And there's all these people saying, you know, we have to have a lot of different choices uh, for people that aren't ready to jump into abstinence. You know, it's better for them to do harm reduction and stay alive until they're ready to make a change. Um, And, you know, it used to be you need to go out and drink more and do more drugs until you're ready to come crawling to us on your knees. Hit bottom. (laughs) Yeah, hit bottom. Yeah, yeah. Well, I'm really pleased to hear you say that. You've probably been more active in those communities than I have been because I was just writing a book. So that's very encouraging and rewarding to hear that. So there's definitely, I'd say, you know, there used to be 1% that was open-minded, and now there's maybe 20% that's open-minded. Uh-huh. And that's a big change. Uh-huh. That's, that's really very good to hear. And and I see it, too, since I wrote Sober for Good. I mean, I think there's just been a, a big difference in the reaction to this book, which has been um, more, well, critical, I guess, than Sober for Good. You know, I think I was more, I've been more direct, this book is more direct than Sober for Good was. Um, well, it's different. It, it, it's, it has, it's a different thing. But it's it's more critical. And um, and I think that um, although Sober for Good, for the most part, was well-received, there, there's there been less backlash um, because of this book. So mm-hmm. it's good news. Well, Sober for Good was not critical at all. It was uh, looking for success stories and different ways yep. to achieve success. So that was very positive. I, If I recall when I was talking to you earlier about this book, you were kind of were you going into a rehab looking for success stories too, a similar type of book? Did, no, did this... no, I, no. This was my digression from that model because you know I did the same thing with weight stories and with sober for good. Just the fact, especially 
you know, 12 years ago, 13 years ago when I started the research, just the fact that I was suggesting you could do it without AA was critical. You know, mm-hmm. that was seen as really controversial. Um, the terribly. fact that I was saying you can get sober without having a higher power, you can get so because people told me they did it, you can get sober without going to meetings for the rest of your life, you can get sober without AA, um, you can get sober without hitting bottom. The fact that I was challenging or, you know, well, basically that was challenging the very tenets of AA or what people think are the tenets of AA was controversial. Um, so um, anyway. Yeah. So when you started this book, Inside Rehab, did you think rehab was in as bad a state as you found it to be? I had quite a few inklings because of what Dr. McClellan had told me. So I, I, but there were certain things that turned out to be worse than they were, like the credentialing of counselors, the amount of group you know, and lack of the amount of group treatment and the lack of individual treatment in traditional programs, those things were worse than I thought. Um, by the way, the, I started to tell you in the beginning that the um, Bush administration, the um, Dr. McClellan told me that um, the ONDCP, the Office of National Drug Control Policy, pulled the plug on his study that was systematically studying addiction treatment programs across the country. I started to say that this ended up not being in the book, but it was at my Psychology Today blog. Um, he, his preliminary study that was showing how deplorable the state of addiction treatment was in the country, the Bush administration, the ONDCP, the person in charge of that at the time, who is not the current person, pulled the plug on that study because it was an embarrassment to the ONDCP and the Bush administration. So it never continued, which I think is pretty troubling. So, But there was a, a preliminary study that was published. So anyway, well, thank you so much for well, your time you and attention and for reading my book. <laughs> well, I recommend this to everybody that has well, anybody that's ever considering going into rehab or seeking any kind of professional help for uh, any substance use problem, take a good long look at this book before you do anything else. Well, thanks, Ken. It was good talking to you. Okay. Thanks for being our guest tonight. Okay. Take care. Okay. Good night, everybody. We'll see you next week. Bye-bye.